For the rest of us, you can open your books of praise. We're looking at the Belgian Confession, and we're going to be reading from page 500 in the books of praise. We're going to be looking at Article 4 and Article 6. Before we do that, I wonder if any of you know how many books you have in your home. Some of you maybe could count the number of books you have on a hand or on two hands, and some of you have many more books you don't really know how many. I did a quick estimate. I have a lot of books because I have to use a lot of books as a pastor, and I estimated that I have somewhere about, about 2,000 books in my house. There are some pastors that I know that probably would have five times that many. 2,000 books. Some of you younger kids can ask me how many of those I've read. Do you know what the the largest library in the world is? The largest library in the world is the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And it has 16 million books and about 120 million manuscripts on top of that. They have about 120 new, uh, sorry, 1,200 new books or manuscripts entering the library per day. That is a big library. I know if I look in the, at the, the first couple of uh, pages on my ESV Bible here, I can find the Library of Congress catalog card number because the, this version of the Bible, this translation, is in the Library of Congress and it has that number. You sort of think, that's a very big library. And I thought my library was big. And somebody has to decide which books get into that library and which books don't get into that library. And they have to have some sort of system for understanding how that works. Well, here's how this relates to the teaching this afternoon. Uh, This is called the Bible. And Bible, the Bible, that's a, a word that comes from a Latin word, biblia, and it means books. It means books. So this is a book of books. It's a mini little library. And does anybody know how many books are in here? There's 66 books in this little library of books, and so we call it the Holy Scriptures. These are all the books of the Bible. There's 66 of them, and who decided which ones got to go in this library? And how did that happen? I bet you were going to say God did. Yeah, you are not in your head. So we're going we're gonna to look at that a little bit. Who decided and how did they decide what books got into this library that we call the Bible and which ones don't? So have a look with me at Article 4 of the Belgian Confession. Article 4 of the Belgian Confession. So just the title says, the canonical books. The canonical books. So it's sometimes referred to as the canon of scripture, the canonical books. And canon just comes from a Latin word that means the rule, but not in sort of uh, like the rule of law, but like the rule of St. Benedict. It's, it's a, a rule, it's a thing that you, you measure something by. It's something that you live according to. So the canonical books are the books that we use as the rule of our life, the, the books that we measure our life against, the books that we use um, to, to guide our lives. And we looked last time when we talked about the Word of God, that the Word of God is God-breathed. Oh, it's, the, it's the inspired Word of God. And here we're talking about the canonical books, those books which are in our Bible. And so we read this. We believe that the Holy Scriptures consist of two parts, namely the Old and New Testament, which are canonical, against which nothing can be alleged, 
these books are listed in the Church of God as follows, and then it has the list of all of the, the books of the Old Testament, and then the 39 books of the Old Testament, and then all of the 27 books of the New Testament. And maybe some of you kids, and maybe some of you adults have some sort of little jingle or song that you've memorized in order to memorize all the books of the Bible. But we're not gonna sing that right now. So these are the books that are in our Bible, the canonical books. And interestingly, the first paragraph says, these are the canonical books which, uh, against which nothing can be alleged. Or you could say, these are the books in which there is no controversy. In other words, Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians, we all agree on this list of books. In this list of books, nobody has any arguments about this. These are the books, the canonical books of scripture. These are the ones that we accept. And then we would say, as, uh, as Christians, we'd say that the canon of scripture, the list of books of scripture, is closed. In other words, we can't add any more books to it. So, you know, the Apostle Paul mentioned some other books that he wrote. Uh, if we were to discover one of those, we probably wouldn't add it to the canon of Scripture. We have the canon of Scripture. These are the books that, that we need. And oftentimes what's used to, to justify that is we quote Augustine from the fourth century, and Augustine famously said, the canon is closed. You don't add any more books to Scripture. But here's the thing. Protestants like to quote Augustine and say the canon is closed, but guess what? When Augustine said the canon was closed, he didn't have all the same books in his canon. There were some missing and there were some other ones added. And so that's what I wanna talk a little bit about today. We're gonna to talk specifically about the makeup of our Bible and, and why we have these, these books and not others. And we're gonna do that with a focus today specifically on the Old Testament books and then at a, another date we'll talk about the New Testament books. And so that's really what Article 6 is all about. So have a look at Article 6, which says, we distinguish these holy books, that's the canonical books, we distinguish the canonical books, the holy books, from the apocryphal, namely three and four Esdras, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, additions to Esther, the prayer of Azariah, and the song of the three young men in the furnace, Susanna, Bell, and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and one and two Maccabees. All right, we'll just stop there for a moment. So there's, that's, a, that's a list of what we call the apocryphal books, and here's where the controversy is. There's no controversy on the canonical books in, in the list, books listed in Article 4, but there is controversy about the books that we just read in Article 6, because the Roman Catholic Church accepts all of those books. And Eastern Orthodox tradition accepts those books, but the Protestants don't. We don't put them in our library. We don't put them in our Bible. So that's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk a little bit about why this is the case. So, first of all, uh, what does apocryphal mean? Apocryphal, so if you can kinda look at the word, it's got, it almost looks like it has the word crypt in it, C-R-Y-P, if you had a T in there, it would be crypt. And a crypt is like, a, is like a, a cave where you might hide something. In fact, the word crypt means hidden. And that's what apocryphal means. Apocryphal means hidden or secret. So it's not that these books came from a crypt, that they came from a secret cave or something like that. They're secret or hidden in that their authorship, who really wrote them, is unknown. That, that's hidden to us, right? Jerome in the, the fourth century, he said that 
their, their authorship is unhidden and it's uncertain. We, we, or sorry, it's hidden and their authority is uncertain. There's, it's not as clear as for the rest of the books. So they're called the apocryphal books. So the Roman Catholic Bible has all of these books meshed in with the canonical books, the books that we have in our Bible. And um, that all changed in 1534 when Martin Luther, the reformer, he translated the Bible and he translated into German and then he set out the list of the books and he took all the apocryphal books, the ones that are just named there, and he put them in a separate section of his Bible so that they weren't with all of the rest of the books. And he actually put them right between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And he said, these are not really the books of the Bible. They're just sitting in between there. And then after him, the Geneva Bible in 1560 does the same thing. The Geneva Bible written in Calvin's Geneva, they take the scriptures that we have and then they, they separate out the Apocrypha. And the King James Version in 1611 does the same and the Bible produced by the Synod of Dort in 1619 does the same. And so you start having Protestant Bibles that look different than Catholic Bibles. All the way through to today where I have a Bible here and this is produced by a, a Protestant publishing house and it doesn't contain the Apocrypha at all. The apocryphal books are not in there. So why not? Why don't we have apocryphal books in our Bible? And just to, just to give you, I, I forgot to show you this earlier. So you kids usually think about like, this is what the Bible looks like, right? But the writing's really small and the pages are really thin, like so much so that I could like see through it almost, right? So if you try to write on there with a marker, well then it bleeds through like three pages. If you were to take this Bible and you were to just print it out to look like normal books, this is how big the Bible would be. The Bible would be about this big. So this is a copy of the exactly same Bible, the ESV Bible, and each one of this, this here is just the first uh, books of Moses, and it's written on regular pages like this. So if you were to write out the whole Bible like that, that's about how big the Bible is. There's 66 books in there, and you can come and have a look at that if you're a kid later on. You can feel how heavy this is. It's, the Bible is a big collection of books. So why do we have this collection of books and we don't have the apocryphal books? Well, there's five reasons as Protestants why we do not include the apocryphal books in our Bibles. The first reason is this. The first reason is that the Jewish church, the Jewish people, never considered the apocryphal books as inspired words of scripture. The Jewish people never considered those books that we find in the Catholic scriptures, for instance, that they were inspired. So Romans chapter three, verse two, Psalm 147, 19 to 20, talk about how the Jewish people have collected the word of God, right? The old covenant people, they collect the word of God, they maintain the, 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 the word of God, but they never consider the apocryphal books as scripture in the same way the rest of them were. Now how they came to collect all of their books together is a bit of a mystery. Uh, the Jewish tradition says that there was the great assembly or the great synagogue where there was 120 scribes and, and author Jewish authorities that met together somewhere between the end of the Old Testament through to a couple of hundred years before Jesus, and they, at some point in time, in some way that history is not really certain of, came to a conclusion that these books here form the canon of Jewish scripture. And there's all kinds of Jewish theories on, on how that worked or uh, when that actually happened, but that's, that's how the Jewish scriptures came to be. 
Now, when we think about the Jewish scriptures, we have to think about, about them like this. Now, I'm gonna apologize ahead of time. This is not an ideal setup, and some of you can't see it from far away, but we're gonna just try to make do here. When we talk about the Jewish scriptures, it's important to understand what we're talking about. The Jewish scriptures are called, in Hebrew, the Tanakh. Can any of you kids say that? The Tanakh. All right, the Tanakh. And in, and in Hebrew, it's the, the consonants that are really important, and the vowels get added in later. So this is, this is the Hebrew scriptures are called the Tanakh, and that's actually an acronym. Each one of the big letters represents something. So the first one represents the Torah. Sometimes we just call that the law. That's the, the first books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That's the first part, the oldest part of the Jewish scriptures. The next part, the N, stands for this. The Nevi'im. And that is a Jewish word, or the Hebrew word, for the prophets. So T for Torah, N for Nevi'im. Now, they don't, the Jewish scriptures uh, don't have the, the books of the Old Testament in the same order that we do. The Torah they do, but the Nevi'im includes prophets, but not all of the prophets. For instance, in the next section, uh, Daniel's included in the next section. So they organize their scriptures a little bit different. The K is the, oh, I better remember this properly. I'm gonna check the spelling, okay? The K The Ketuvim, and we call that the writings. And that includes Esther, it includes Daniel, it includes the Psalms, it includes the Proverbs, and importantly, it ends with one and two Chronicles. And you'll see why that's important in just a moment. So when, the Jewish, uh, when we talk about the Jewish scriptures, we're talking about the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And then the Jews had a bunch, this is they considered the, the inspired scriptures, and then they had a bunch of other books that they sort of included in their writings, and those are the apocryphal books. But they're not part of the Tanakh. They're not part of the inspired writings. So the Tanakh has the same 39 Old Testament books that we do in a different order, and then those apocryphal books that are mentioned in Article 6, they were written apart. They were valued, they're they considered important, but they were not considered inspired by God. They're still not considered inspired by, not, by uh, God, by the Jewish people. So that's the first reason why we do not accept the apocryphal books, because the Old Covenant people in the Old Testament and Jews still today never considered them inspired, so we don't either. The second reason why we as Protestants don't accept the apocryphal books is because Jesus did not consider them scripture. And that's important. Last week we talked about, you know, you, if you start with Jesus and how Jesus understood Scripture, that leads you to the truth. So Jesus didn't understand them as Scripture. Jesus understood the Old Testament to be the Tanakh, not the apocryphal books. And I'm going to show you uh, why we believe that is true. So have a look with me at Luke chapter 24. Actually, what we can do is this. We can say Luke chapter 24, verse 44. So perhaps, Andre, if you have it there, Luke chapter 24, 
verse 44. And if you could read just that verse out loud, and then while Andre's reading that verse out loud, I'd like you to look at me, okay? So go ahead. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So remember what book was here? Amongst the list of the writings include the Psalms. All right, so it seems that in Jesus' day they would call it the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms, even though the Psalms was another section. But here's Jesus saying, all of scripture he's summarizing as the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, or the Law, the Prophet, and the Writings. He doesn't say the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, and that other list. He just is talking about the Tanakh. Jesus considered the Tanakh the inspired scriptures and not the other books. Now have a look, uh, if, you, if you like, or you could just remember what we read from Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, this, this rather uh, odd text that talks about lawyers, and so that's why I thought I'd get Andre to read again so he wouldn't feel bad. Um, so it talks about lawyers. We're not gonna look at the argument there, but if you look at, um, at verse 51, it says, these are Jesus' words, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So he says in verse 50, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world might be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So the story of Abel happens in Genesis, the first book of the Torah, right? His blood is shed. So Jesus is saying from the blood of Abel, that is from the beginning of scriptures, through to the blood of Zechariah. And the blood of Zechariah, the murder of Zechariah, uh, takes place in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, which is the last book of the Tanakh. So Jesus is saying, from all of scripture, from the very beginning to the very end, he just considers the Tanakh to be holy scripture. He doesn't consider the apocryphal books. And that's why, as Protestants, we don't have the apocryphal books in our Bible. Third reason why we do not accept the apocryphal books. The apocryphal books are not quoted in the New Testament as scripture. So there's plenty of verses in the New Testament where a writer might say, um, you know, as the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, or when God said, and then you look at back at, uh, and it was actually David that was speaking. But the New Testament doesn't do that with the apocryphal books. So there are uh, things that we find in the New Testament that relate to other books, but they're never said, you know, thus says the Lord, and then quote from an apocryphal book. So, for instance, um, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about Isaiah being sawn in two. Or it says there's someone, you know, the prophets who are sawn in two. And we know that uh, from church history that people like Origen of Alexandria, writing in just the, the third century, he said that's a reference to Isaiah. Isaiah was sawn in two, he said, because we have a book called um, the Apocrypha of Isaiah, which is an old... Jewish book, not in this list, that talks about that. So he suggests that the author of the Hebrews was looking back at an, another Jewish source and talked about prophets being sawn in half, and he was referring to Isaiah. But just because an author does that in the New Testament doesn't mean that therefore his source has to be inspired scripture. In the same way we have in Jude, we have this interesting suggestion in, or interesting verse in Jude, Jude chapter nine, where Michael and the devil are disputing over the body of Moses. It's a very strange text. And if you, uh, the early writers in the, in, the, in the second, third century, they said, well, that comes from the, uh, another Jewish book called The Assumption of Moses, which is a Jewish book that we've lost. 
And so in the early church, they knew of that book and they said, well, that's a reference to that book. So there are things in the New Testament that refer to other, other Jewish books that are not in the Tanakh, but that doesn't mean that they're referring to them as scripture. Another example would be Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse 14 and 15, where Jude quotes the book of Enoch, and the book of Enoch is not amongst the apocryphal books. It's never considered you know, a, a book that should be part of the, the Jewish or the Catholic canon, but Jude seems to quote from the book of Enoch. But you know, Paul elsewhere quotes from Greek poets, so, it's, so they, they can quote from these books, but that doesn't mean that these books are therefore inspired. So why do we not accept these books as, as scripture? The Jewish church never did. Jesus didn't consider them scripture. They're not quoted as scripture in the New Testament. And then the last one here would be, or the, the fourth one, sorry, would be that um, these apocryphal books were not uh, accepted as scripture in the ancient church, in the ancient Christian church. So what we have is two, three hundred years before Jesus, there is a translation uh, of the Hebrew Bible that's done by a whole bunch of Jewish scholars, and that translation is called the Septuagint. It's a translation that's done by Jewish Egyptian scholars, and they translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And Septuagint just means 70, because there was 70 scholars. And so sometimes if you ever read a commentary, sometimes you'll see in the notes, there'll be in uh, letters LXX, which are the Roman numerals for 70, and that's just a way to reference the Septuagint. So the Septuagint just sometimes goes by the letter 70. And so they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. But here's the thing. They translated the Tanakh, which the Jews all considered scripture, and they translated the apocryphal books. And they put them all in one. And so, even though the Jews understood them as separate, they had them all translated. And the Septuagint, by the way, when, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it quotes it from the Septuagint. It doesn't quote it from the Hebrew, it quotes from this one. So then what happens is that uh, in the early church, the, uh, in, uh, in the fourth century, we get the first major translation of the Bible, and it's the translation into Latin, and that translation is called the Vulgate. And the Vulgate is a Latin translation of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Tanakh and the Apocryphal books. Okay, it's a translation of a translation. And that translation is done by a man named Jerome, and he translates that. But as he translates that, he writes in the fourth century that there is a difference between the, the ancient Hebrew text and the Greek text, and that the Tanakh is inspired scripture, but the Apocryphal books are not but he translates the whole Septuagint, he translates all of them into Latin. And he says, but they're, they're, you gotta keep these two things separate. Now some people in his day were starting already to disagree with him. They're like, ah, we've been reading the Septuagint, we kind of are starting to think that all of the Septuagint, including the apocryphal books, are also scripture. And Jerome says, no, that's not the case. So there's a, there's a bit of controversy over that, but he, uh, he insists that those two things are separate. But what happens is that over time, over hundreds of years, everyone in the church is using the Vulgate, right? And they're reading it in Latin, and pretty soon, the majority of people just begin to accept everything in the Vulgate, which is everything in the Septuagint, which is the Tanakh and the Apocryphal books. They begin to accept all of it as Christian scripture. And so, 
we find uh, a couple regional councils within uh, the Roman Catholic Church make pronouncements that all of these books are Holy Scripture. There's, ne there's never a Roman Catholic, like a, a church-wide declaration that this is all of Holy Scripture until the Council of Trent in 1546, which is a reaction against the Protestants who say, no, we gotta keep them separated. And then the Catholic Church says, no, they're all together. So officially they say it's all together, but it comes because of this reality. So one of the reasons that we say no is that we would say no, Jerome was correct. He's the one who translated that Bible, but we believe, we believe like him that we need to keep the apocryphal books separate from the rest of Hebrew scriptures. So why do we not include these in our, in our, uh, in our canon? Because the Jewish church never received them, Jesus didn't accept them as scripture, they're not quoted as scripture in the New Testament, they're not received by the ancient church. And then this fifth reason they contain historical and theological error, the apocryphal books. The apocryphal books have some really strange stories in them. So uh, the story of Bell and the dragon, which was put on to the, to the end of Daniel, tells a story about uh, a dragon, like a real dragon that comes and they're trying to defeat it and Daniel defeats it with bad cake. So what he does is he makes a cake and he uses some like some pitch, some bitumen, and he adds some, some versions have nails or glass or other things that he mixes in there and he feeds that to the dragon and he defeats the dragon. So some tales that we would find odd that don't match with the rest of scripture. But there's also teaching in those books um, that uh, teaches pretty clearly salvation by works, not by grace. There's things like the angel Raphael driving the devil away with the smoke of a fish's liver and then accepting prayer made to him. Um, there's the concept of purgatory and the worship of saints and prayer for the dead. These things are found in one and two Maccabees. In the book of Tobit, you have uh, the, the basis of the Roman Catholic doctrines of exorcisms. And then you have other things. For instance, 2 Maccabees ends like this. This is not what you would expect from inspired scripture. The book of Ma 2 Maccabees ends like this. If it is well told and to the point, that is what I myself desired. If it's poorly done and mediocre, I did the best I could. It's not really what you would expect from the inspired word of God. And so for these reasons, the fact that the, the, the texts themselves of the apocryphal books don't, um, don't read like the rest of scripture, that we would not accept those. All right, so then the question is this. Well, what do we do with them? Do they still have value? Should we read them? Should, what, what do we do with them? And I, what I'd like to say to you is that as Reformed Christians, we would say, yes, they have value, and yes, we should read them. But we shouldn't make them part of our Bible. We, shouldn't, we don't include them as the canon of Scripture. So if, I don't know, some of, somebody mentioned to me last week, I think, that they, when they were in high school, they took a course on the Maccabees. Was that, was that somebody here? Yeah, so a couple of you took a course on the Maccabees. You understand the history of what happens between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Fascinating stuff, lots of good his, uh, history there, things that we can learn. And so that, that's, a, that's good. We should value that. That's good and interesting stuff to read. And there's other really, really worthwhile stuff found in some of the apocryphal books that is worthwhile to pay attention to. So I'm going to read to you just a short passage from the book of Ecclesiasticus. Not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. And this comes from chapter 38, and there is just tons of wisdom in here. So you listen to this, and this is good applicable stuff for your everyday life. So listen to what Ecclesiasticus 38 says. It's, it's talking about um, what to do when you're sick. 
The Lord has brought forth medicinal herbs from the ground, and no one sensible will despise them. Did not a piece of wood once sweeten the water, thus giving proof of its power? He's also given some people knowledge so that they might draw credit from his mighty works. He uses these for healing and relieving pain. The druggist makes up a mixture from those herbs. Thus there is no end to his activities. Thanks to him, that is thanks to the druggist or the doctor, well-being exists throughout the world. My child, when you are ill, do not rebel. Pray to the Lord and he will heal you. Renounce your faults. Keep your hands unsoiled. Cleanse your heart from all sin. Offer incense and a memorial of fine flour. Make as rich an offering as you can afford. Then let the doctor take over. The Lord created him too. Do not let him leave you, for you will need him. There are times when good health depends on doctors, for they in their turn will pray the Lord to grant them the grace to relieve and to heal and so prolong your life. Isn't that good advice? What did you do when you're sick, according to Ecclesiastes 38? You pray, you confess your sin, you make sure that you're not involved in anything bad that might be causing your own sickness, and once you've done that, you go to the doctors, because sometimes it's not that your sickness has to do anything spiritual, but it's just a reality of living in this fallen world, and you let the doctor do their work as a blessing from God. Now that's the way that we should teach our kids, isn't it? That you, you have something wrong with you, let's pray. And then let's go to the medicine cabinet. You know, And let's not despise doctors as if going to the doctor is less spiritual or something like that. There's lots of wisdom in there. That's, that's good advice. It's worthwhile reading. And the reformers, back in, in the time of the Protestant Reformation, they were way more comfortable than us um, drawing material from the apocryphal books. So John Calvin, in his commentary in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, he quotes from Baruch, and he suggests that the Apostle Paul is alluding to the same book in 1 Corinthians 10. So he's quoting from an apocryphal book in his commentary. So he takes the, these, these apocryphal books seriously. Calvin writes a book called Antidote and its response to the, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent. And there he disagrees with the idea that you would make the apocryphal books part of Holy Scripture. But he says, there are some people out there that say that you shouldn't even read them, but I don't say that. You should read them. They're helpful for you. And that's what, exactly what we confess in Article 6. So if you look at the second part of Article 6 in the Belgian Confession, you read this. They are, that is the apocryphal books, however far from having such power and authority that we may confirm from their, oh sorry, I'm gonna back up one sentence. The church may read and take instruction from these so far as they agree with the canonical books. They are, however, far from having such power and authority that we may confirm from their testimony any point of faith or that of the Christian religion, much less may they be used to detract from the authority of these holy books. So the church may read from them, take instruction from them, as long as that instruction agrees with what we have in the canonical books of scripture. So use them, read them, but don't base any particular doctrine just on them, right? You can use them as a supplement to what we have in Holy Scripture. And this, this year I, I find it kind, kind of interesting. There is a, a former professor from the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary called uh, Nicholas Gouches, Gouches, I'm probably you know, you know, destroying his name, Gouches. He writes a book called The Belgian Confession, Its History and Sources. And he looks at the original versions of the, of the Belgian Confession from 1561. And he notes that in Article 12 of the Belgian Confession, which talks about creation, 
he looks and he finds a footnote there uh, in, uh, related to Article 12, and the footnote is Daniel chapter 14. All right, so maybe one of you kids can look up Daniel chapter 14 for me. He quotes Daniel chapter 14. So if you're looking it up, you're not going to find it because Daniel doesn't have 14 chapters. But the Belgian Confession had a footnote saying Daniel 14, verse 4. Daniel only has 12 chapters. And the reason that it was quoting that, it was using the, you know, the old system. It was quoting from the apocryphal story of Bell and the Dragon, which people connected to the end of Daniel. So the Belgian Confession, at, at the one hand, says in Article 6, you can use them and you can be instructed on them. And then it even applies that within its own document by footnoting an apocryphal book to make a point. And it, the, 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 the verse that it quotes says, then Daniel said to the king, none do I worship save the Lord, the God who created the heaven and the earth, even him who has, has sovereignty over all flesh. And of course we would agree to that. That matches well with what scripture teaches. So Guido de Brer writes the Belgian Confession, tells us, be instructed by the books, and then applies that within his own document. I find it interesting. So what are we, what are we gonna do with all of that? I'd like to suggest just a, a few very, very brief things related to all of this teaching we've just had. I think that we would do well to, to follow the reformers and take heed to what we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 6, and that we would read the apocryphal books. You read lots of different things, but the church for so many years, even in ancient times, has gathered good wisdom from the apocryphal books, so why not have a read of them? You can find them free online. And then I, I sort of began to wonder, why do we, you know, you, you might have an old Bible at home that has them in your Bible, you know, as an appendix, but that doesn't happen in Protestant Bibles anymore, and I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if it would be a good thing to have an appendix at the back that had the apocryphal books. You could have some clear teaching in there that these are not inspired scripture, but they have been stuck together or, you know, uh, compiled together with the inspired canon of scripture for a very, very long time. I think it's also important, this, this type of teaching, you might be sitting here this afternoon going, well, this is, this is interesting and all, but it seems just sort of very technical. But I do believe that this is important because um, you're going to hear from time to time, it seems like every 15, 20 years, there's an article in Time Magazine or there's a book like the Da Vinci Code that comes out or some other book that comes out that claims to have found a book that they, they, the church refused to put into scripture and it's got all this secret hidden knowledge in it and it's always an apocryphal book of some sort. And there's a lot of Protestants that, you know, that get swayed by that. They read that and they're like, what? And then they look in the history and they're like, there's there's books out there that, that some people thought should be part of the canon and art, and they're all surprised by it. And it's like, ooh, don't be one of those people. Know your history a little bit, so that when you have something like that and someone tries to claim, like, ooh, look, there's a secret book that nobody ever paid attention to, that you can know in your mind, no, I understand a little bit how scripture came together. I understood that there's differences in these books. And I understand also why we as Protestants don't include them in our Bible. It's also important to resist what can sometimes be the strong pull of Catholicism. Sometimes Protestants who convert to Catholicism do so because they're, like, they're a little bit enchanted by, by the things that they seem to have missed as Protestants. And I've talked to people that were like, oh, but there's all these other books that Catholics have, and they, they, they never were taught to understand how to think about those books. And so it's important to do that so that you can say, hey, I'm a Protestant and I have reasons to be so, 
And it's not just that some, you know, Constantine at some time decided that those books were not in the Bible. No, it was a much more organic process. And we're going to follow this up next week, or probably not next week, the week after, talking about uh, the books of the New Testament. Maybe you've got questions about this. I'm going to stay again after the the service, after we finish this worship service. And if you have some questions about uh, what all this means, feel free to come and chat with me about that. I'll also uh, say some words if people are interested about an email that we sent out recently concerning pulpit supply. You don't have to come and stay behind for my sake. I'm not offended if you don't come. But if you have questions, I'd be happy to stay uh, behind and chat a little bit. I'm going to finish with this, brothers and sisters. Most of us are pretty unfamiliar with the apocryphal books. But actually, there's one apocryphal book that you use all the time, but you're just not aware of it. Because there is a hymn in our book of praise that is based on a passage of an apocryphal book. And we're going to sing it. It's hymn 85. Hymn 85 is based on a passage in the book of Ecclesiasticus. And it's a beautiful passage and it's a beautiful hymn. And we're going to sing that together after we pray. So let's pray now. Our dear Lord, Father in heaven, we confess that your word is a lamp unto our feet. We confess, Lord, that all of scripture is God-breathed. We confess, Lord, with Jesus Christ, that the Old and New Testament is the very words of Christ to make us wise to salvation. And so we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for the Holy Scriptures, for this library, the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that in its pages you reveal yourself to us in a way that goes so far and beyond how you reveal uh, yourself to us in Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Without it, we would be lost. We thank you, Lord, that you've given wisdom to so many authors outside of the pages of Holy Scripture uh, throughout all of history and still today, writers that we can glean wisdom from, writers that can make us think. And so we thank you also for the apocryphal books and the things that we can learn from them. But we pray, Lord, that in everyday life it is the words of Holy Scripture that would come to our mind and that we would devote ourselves to the canonical books as the inspired word of God. Bless us now, Lord, as we sing some of the wisdom of of the ancient writer of Ecclesiasticus. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.